This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Aloha, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jeremy Vaney, and I am not Whitley Strieber. However, I will be your host of Dreamland once a month from here until eternity or until Whitley gets sick of my impression of him and then it's over. Uh, (laughs) But a little about me in case you're not familiar and in case you missed the announcement um, when I was a guest on his show, I think probably last week. We recorded it earlier, but I think it was on last week. Um, So... uh, People from UnknownCountry.com already know me. If you're a subscriber, you uh, know my show, The Experience. Well, I'm taking my know-how and bringing it to Dreamland. Um, prior to that, I, I've hosted, uh, well, in total, I think 10 podcasts. I think I'm James Brown of podcasting, the hardest working man in podcasting. Uh, probably the most famous of those was Paratopia with Jeff Ritzman. Um, I bring that up because at least one future guest has already uh, will have already mentioned it. I don't want it to be like, what's he talking about, Paratopia? It's this podcast I hosted with Jeff Ritzman. Um, so maybe you know me from there. Maybe you don't know me at all. Uh, what you should know is that I'm not Whitley Strieber, uh, but we love each other anyway. It's amazing what happens when you're not a narcissist. <laughs> I have a sense of humor and I'm going to use it, folks, but don't let that fool you. Um, I will also be having serious discussions. And what I see my job as here is obviously not trying to mimic him. Who can imitate Whitley Strieber? Not me. Um, But as I talked about on that episode I did with him, if you missed it, uh, I see this as an opportunity to expose you to new voices, um, expose a large audience to new voices who have a lot of unique and interesting things to say about all sorts of topics in these realms, obviously. Paranormal, ufological, um, you know, ancient, alienish, dare I say, I might not dare say. That brings us to our first guest today, uh, who is Alicia Puglionisi. She describes herself as... Uh, one who studies the history of knowledge-making and mystery in the human sciences. Her latest book is uh, In Whose Ruins, Power, Possession, and the Landscapes of American Empire, which examines four sites of resource extraction that also yielded scientific and spiritual narratives core to U.S. settler colonialism. That's a mouthful. Um, And then for subscribers, in the latter half of the program, we're going to be talking about Common Phantoms, an American history of psychic science, which was her uh, first book. So these books are connected. We're going to get into that. Now, I believe that the important thing at this point in our history with these here phenomena, and especially for me as an experiencer myself, is not just to explore the topics and the ways that we're comfortable with and that have become uh, rote to us or become the thing that we are all in agreement on, Um, but to really shine a light on the dark recesses uh, of our own consciousness and our cultural consciousness to expose ourselves to ourselves. Because as we're talking about an enigmatic other, an alien, a ghost, or whatever, as we're trying to you know, ask ourselves about these other, what are these other beings? How can we ask that if we don't know ourselves? 
And so part of knowing ourselves is, again, dealing with uncomfortable things. And I say that because we're going to start that off right here. Um, though this is not a political show per se, I think politics come from the inside out and inform the world. And so um, they are an issue of the internal as well as the thing that you want to ignore at dinner parties <laughs> and probably on paranormal podcasts. But we can't ignore it when it comes to, for instance, uh, the topics that we're going to be speaking about today. Maybe not surprisingly, um, f you know, First Nations structures in what we now call America, you know, their origin stories, which involve racism and, uh, you know, corporate greed, funny enough. But also, who knew that this rears its head in the psychic research of the 1800s? Hmm? So... I am thrilled that a historian is coming on to speak to us about this stuff. Um, I'm thrilled whenever somebody comes on anything I do, um, when they're like either nervous about it. I don't think she was nervous about it, but it's if it's not in their wheelhouse. And I think this is not necessarily, Dreamland is not necessarily, or hasn't been at least in her wheelhouse. And so she didn't know what to expect and she did the show anyway. And you'll find that with our next guest next month as well. You know, someone who is sort of hesitant, but is willing to come on anyway. And I think, I don't know, when that happens to me, it's kind of magical. And I, I feel grateful to have this opportunity to bring these people to Dreamland and for them to trust me to do that and for Whitley to trust me to do this. So thank you, Whitley. I'll try to do right by you. That, that's the best I can do, really. Um, I hope you all find this as fascinating as I do. Free Dreamlanders, we will pick it up with Alicia Pulianisi right after these messages. Thank you for coming on, and thank you for, for, for doing this with me. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So we're going to concentrate here uh, for a while on your new book, In Whose Ruins, Power, Possession, and the Landscapes of American Empire. And uh, I'm going to ask you a question that you're probably sick of, but I know the answer and it ties into your first book. And so I think it's a great bit, which is why did you, what is the book <laughs> and uh, what led you to write it? Yeah, uh, I do have an answer for that <laughs> uh, because it is uh, it is definitely the first question. Uh, so my first book, which grew out of my PhD research, was about psychical research in parapsychology, and so I had done a lot of you know archival research and put together what I thought was a very interesting story. Uh, but as it always happens with that kind of thing, there was one piece that kind of needed to be its own separate thing. And it was a piece where it was just something that I stumbled upon in the archive. Uh, a woman had written a letter to the American Society of Psychical Research in, you know, 1890 something about an experience that she had while visiting the Miamisburg Mound in Ohio. And she describes having this uh, clairvoyant vision of, but rather than seeing into the future, she claims to have seen into the past and to have seen indigenous people constructing that mound. And I read that letter and 
uh, the Psychical Research Society then sent it to all these archaeologists and they kind of laughed at it. Um, but it was really interesting to me as an ordinary person's intervention into uh, a very live archaeological debate about the North American past. Uh, and so there was just so much context to it. And I recognized when I saw that it was about uh, an indigenous mound, I recognized from you know previous stuff that I had read that there might the mound builder myth might be in play there. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Um, but I was surprised that rather than positing a race of mound builders who were non-Indigenous, uh, were not Native American, this woman did say that Native American people had built the mound. And so that was like an unexpected thing, given how widespread these alternative history beliefs were at that time uh, and continue to be. So that just opened up all of this stuff. See, it's like taking me so long to explain it <laughs> that I was yeah. like, yes, this needs to be its own book. Um, and so I you know, wrote a chapter about that, about the attempt to relate to and understand the past of the land through uh, psychic or clairvoyant means. And then I started thinking about uh, land as a resource, because of course this is all happening in the context of uh, U.S. expansion and colonialism moving west across the continent. And so the political situation is very important and shaping people's experiences and beliefs. And so looking at land as a resource and land as power led me to look at these other examples of quote unquote natural resources that take on their meaning, significance, um, and potency through a combination of like technology, uh, you know, burning oil in a combustion engine, but also through spiritual beliefs and practices that infuse it with a particular kind of ideology. Uh, so that's kind of led me, it led me to look at how spirituality played into other moments of resource extraction, such as the first uh, oil boom in the United States and the building of hydroelectric dams and ultimately uh, the nuclear economy in the U.S. Southwest. Is it, I don't know, par for the course for you or is it disappointing in some way that, uh, you know, as you're doing sort of psychical research and you're seeing links to racism and resources uh, exploitation that you then link onto this and you see, oh, this is the same story playing out in these topics that seem seemingly shouldn't have anything to do with that. Um, but America has a lot to do with that in general. So for you as a historian, are you just like, well, that's par for the course? Or are you like, wow, this is really odd? I think that there's always sort of a story beneath the story uh, in terms of kind of nationalistic narratives. Uh, of expansion of, you know, a resource boom. And so as a historian, you're always looking for that. Uh, you're looking to piece together the political, social, uh, and religious context. And so it's not surprising that that would all be there under the surface. And we definitely like experience a lot of it 
unquestioningly in our own daily lives, and it continues to resurface all the time. Uh, so it's about kind of interrogating those commonplaces and asking how these common sense ideas came about and were constructed. Uh, but there are some things that I was genuinely not expecting. You know, I was not expecting necessarily to find psychic mediums prospecting for oil uh, from the very beginning of the oil boom. Uh, and of course, once I read more about it, I was like, oh, of course, looking for things underground, uh, of course, that's connected to that long history of dowsing and other kinds of water witching. It's just oil instead of water. Uh, but it is it is nice to be surprised by things like that. So in the book, you concentrate on four sites um, in New Mexico, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. So what is it about these places over any other others that leaped out at you as the ones to form the book around? That is a good question and something that uh, was difficult to get into a book proposal. There's kind of an there's kind of uh, a chance quality to some of it. Like these are by no means the most representative places to look to uh, for any of these resource histories. They're just places where I felt like a story kind of came together or emerged out of the intersection of things that were happening there. Uh, and I have an affinity for the things that are subtle, non-obvious, uh, not necessarily famous or well-known. Uh, and that, it, you know, there's a element of chance or uh, coincidence about it, I guess. Hmm. And some of it is me, per you know, where I happen to go personally, like I live in Maryland. And so I, I came to really appreciate the Conowingo Dam uh, because I would cross it all the time uh, going up to Philadelphia and back. And so I first was very interested in the dam. And so I wanted to learn more about its history. And then I learned about these petroglyphs. And so there's always a story uh, that you can put together when you find these intersections. Hmm. Is, uh, maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but it, why not? Is, is there um, a difference in the type of story that comes together around a dam or a water resource as opposed to oil or anything else? I mean, do they all have sort of, how do these stories come about in these different locations? Yeah, I think they are different and similar. And that's one thing that plays out across the book, at least I hope, that a, a sort of resource excitement sets into motion a lot of similar forces. So it can set into motion migration, people moving to the site of a resource. And so we see that with oil and we see that with the nuclear industry, uh, you know, in different ways and different demographics. Uh, but also ideology becomes mobilized and it's like oil became enlisted into narratives of American destiny and so did hydroelectricity and so did nuclear. Uh, and so 
culture kind of culture and spiritual practices kind of like produce uh, like justifications or ways sense making, ways of understanding what it means that we're doing this. And especially with something like nuclear uh, weapons and nuclear power that people quickly understood to be uh, playing with really dangerous forces, uh, you, you really need like a strong narrative uh, of like why this is good and necessary. Hmm. So uh, in terms of how the stories come together and why they come together, how, I don't know, structured is that? Is there sort of the the ruling class that is, uh, ar- you know, the architect behind this, like they see a place that they want and then they, what, form a mysticism about it and all of that? Um, or is it just sort of a snowball effect? Like, is it just something that happens, quote unquote, naturally, or is it something that is structured from a top down, uh, you know, perspective or instruction? Yeah, I think the answer is both. Uh, Sometimes I joke that like there's not a, the only real conspiracy is capitalism, and that kind of explains a lot of things that we often uh, we often seek more occult explanations for, but we can account for a lot just with like the forces of capitalism. But that also, uh, you know, I don't mean to sound conspiratorial in that joke, or like I don't mean to apply it literally in that uh, it's more complicated than a sort of you know, a Rockefeller or something (laughs) uh, controlling the oil industry. Uh, You know, he didn't create all of these narratives that were already in place uh, in the local areas where the oil boom began. Uh, So there's a role for, uh, you know, pre-existing like culture and society uh, and there's a continuity where uh, things are, people are very adaptive and like a new thing sort of appears and you incorporate it into your existing beliefs and practices. Uh, and also like in terms of the class analysis of these resource booms, uh, certainly middle-class and working-class people uh, saw an opportunity and in our system, that's like, uh, you know, it's very desirable to, and this is something that I became very interested in, uh, the search for treasure. Uh, people are often searching for treasure underground, uh, you know, pirate treasure, Indian treasure. Uh, there are all of these uh, kind of treasure frenzies in US history from the colonial period onward. and. I kind of interpret that as doing the psychological work of like, you know, wish fulfillment, perhaps like capitalism isn't fair to live under, but we do hope to benefit from it. And the idea of like the windfall of treasure is kind of the idea that an ordinary person has a chance to become like a wealthy owner of capital. and so the, the pirate version of winning lottery kind of thing. Yes, it's like a pirate version of the lottery. <laughs> uh, except there's like a lot of work to dig those holes. Like they're really digging very deep holes. Uh, and like in the middle of the night, because you could only dig on a full moon or at certain times. Uh, 
Uh, so like all, all weather, they're just like down in these holes in the mud, uh, getting spooked by the demons that are guarding the treasure. So it's also uh, <laughs> scary down there. All right. Well, we will hold that thought and we will come back to pirate treasure uh, right after this brief break. And we're back. Alicia, thanks uh, again for speaking with us about all of this stuff that I think is important, especially around these parts of, you know, people who are interested in the paranormal, who are interested in, um, you know, ancient mysteries and this sort of thing. Um, my take on all of it, you know, if you're going to ask about some sort of enigmatic other, um, you should probably deal with yourself first. And part of that in America is dealing with being an American <laughs> and understanding the racist roots of some of this stuff, the exploitation of this stuff, and see what mystery is left after you've uh, dealt with all that. So I think your work goes a great deal toward that end. Um, but let's just go back to something very basic. Why do they need to do this in the first place? Why make up any stories at all? Why not just take what they want and that's it? That is a good question. Uh, and I mean, I appreciate your framing, first of all, that like there is certainly mystery in the world. And there are certainly things that people are seeking and trying to discover um, about the past, about themselves. But it is really important to look at yourself and your culture uh, in a critical way. So I really appreciate that. Um, and it's definitely what I'm trying to do. Um, and I think that was, uh, you know, I don't have like a real like theoretical articulation of this, but. I think that the spiritual dimension and the narrative dimension uh, of resource extraction has, was important in all of these cases. And I guess I hope to uh, show, not tell, perhaps, how you know individual people's experiences or the experiences of communities, uh, how important these uh, sometimes sometimes straight up myths uh, were to them in helping them do what they were doing, helping them feel like it was reasonable to do what they were doing. Uh, for instance, like looking at the oil boom, uh, and of course this was the 1860s, climate, like no one knew about climate change, no one imagined that burning oil would be a problem ever uh, in the long term. But it was extremely environmentally destructive at the site of extraction. And so uh, because of the way it was extracted and transported in barrels, they were like leaking everywhere. There were just rivers of mud and oil. Everything was highly flammable. So uh, the people who had lived there before the boom began would express sadness about the decimation of uh, you know, entire forests of previously commercially valuable timber uh, were just like clear cut uh, in this frenzy of speculation. And so the behavior uh, was manifestly to people who live there uh, kind of destructive and a bit irrational. Uh, of course, it's rational in terms of markets because as long as investors are paying for it, then it's market logic is working. But uh, 
so people saw like the dark side of this and had to still believe in what they were doing uh, beyond just the idea that they were going to make money. And so the spiritualists who were operating in that region are really telling in that regard. Uh, Jonathan Watson, who's the first oil millionaire in Titusville, Pennsylvania, uh, who owned the land uh, where the Drake well, the first commercial well was drilled, and then he bought up all of the land around it uh, and became very wealthy. Uh, he became a spiritualist, uh, I believe in the 1860s. And, you know, it, his wife was a spiritualist and often there's an influence, like often wives will influence husbands to become involved in spiritualism. Uh, but he really believed in it. And it's just interesting to think about the work that that was doing for someone in that situation. Uh, because it allowed him to really believe that there was meaning to what he was doing and that he was chosen to do what he was doing. Uh, and that can sometimes permit you to do bad things or things that have consequences that you might see as negative, uh, but you keep going. And also you talk about uh, sort of that in terms of um, society at the time, giving society sort of permission to do what they want and not feel bad about it. Look at, uh, you know, indigenous people as savages claim that these structures were made by essentially what white people from some other ancient past or European from some, or Atlantis. I don't know. Is this where the Atlantis Lemurian moo type stuff comes from? So I think that emerges a little bit later. Um, I'm forgetting when that book comes out, but, uh, yeah, so prior to the Atlantis uh, craze, which I think there there were a few cycles of it. I think there may I think the first one may have been in the 1870s, between the 1870s and 90s, and then there's another one in the early 20th century when another book comes out about Atlantis. Um, so it's like that's one strand of it, and the and it, they're all kind of interconnected at times, and then. The strand that you mentioned of sort of the search for a lost white race uh, is often premised on some European population having reached North America by boat uh, and built the mounds that exist across the continent and then been conquered by an invading race that is today's Native Americans. And that formula, you know, has all of these different permutations. Uh, it might, depending often on uh, who is purveying the story, uh, you know, people who want uh, Nordic people to have been the first Americans will say it's Vikings. Some people will say it's the Welsh. Uh, there are some antiquarians who prefer like the Phoenicians or the Israelites. And so it takes all kinds of forms. and. I think another thing that was surprising as I was doing this research was, you know, we should never be surprised that racism and imperialism manifest in U.S. history, but it was surprising how persistent they are and how they sink down into the smallest cracks of things that seem 
kind of uh, obscure or unnecessary. And so oil is another example where uh, the in the Pennsylvania oil fields uh, of Western Pennsylvania and Western New York, uh, you know, there's this community of spiritualists who are interested in using uh, spirit communication to find oil. Uh, but then overlaid on that, uh, the mound builders myth appears and multiple writers uh, in that region writing about the oil boom uh, just in passing will remark that uh, there was clearly an ancient race here before, uh, before the Native Americans that was extracting oil because we've, uh, we've seen these ancient oil troughs in the ground, these sort of log lined troughs that ancient people used to gather oil. And they, as soon as oil became a valuable commodity, they're like, oh, the lost race must have built those. Uh, hmm. And so it's the persistence of it is uh, is interesting. So does that mean that it's de facto theirs because their descendants made it or their ancestors made it? Uh, in some like moral and spiritual way, yes. And so that's the function of the myth. And it's, when you say it out loud, it sounds almost like such a... Uh, blunt literal like psychologizing of people's motives but it you know you can't deny it because it's so persistent and it just manifests all over the place that yeah there's like some diffuse sense of possession and birthright that these stories uh sort of arm people with well, we still see this today, even with, you know, the sort of new agey stuff of like you create your own reality and all of it is geared toward manifesting wealth. And the answer to, well, what about poor people? What about, you know, horrible tragedies that happen to people and all that? The answer to that is like, well, you chose that before you were born. You know, so this idea of, you know, masking your responsibility and in, in the world and your selfishness through like destiny and uh, privilege, essentially <laughs> new age privilege persists to this day. And I, I also wonder, you know, these spiritualists connected to oil, did they somehow transmute into evangelists of today or is that not connected? Uh, I think that's debatable. I think they're, relatively separate strains that both use the same logic that you just described. Uh, and so there's a classic book called The Positive Thinkers that describes this sort of potpourri of, uh, you know, spiritual leaders uh, in the U.S. and all of the different versions of that principle of kind of actualization, manifesting uh self-help uh and so there are so many different flavors of it but there is a fundamental you know individualism and uh belief in the power of thought and and willpower uh to create reality and uh so that definitely 
I, I wouldn't say that spiritualists invented it so much as they're just that's the water that a lot of these people are swimming in. And so evangelical Christianity, which is also plays a very important role uh, in the growth of the oil industry, kind of has its own version of that. Uh, and, you know, it morphs into the prosperity gospel. Uh, and so it's kind of like the Christianized or like church friendly version of it. Whereas spiritualists who are having seances, uh, searching for wealth, are technically, you know, the church does not like that and doesn't encourage you to try to talk to the dead. Hmm. I remember there being like in probably in college, um, sort of the pseudo philosophical question of um, can you judge uh, people of yesteryear by today's moral and ethical standards? And then, well, but what about Hitler? You know, it, it always seemed to me like this would come up in the context of like justifying Hitler in some way, like, you know, it wasn't that bad for Hitler. Like we can't judge him by today's psychology, but it seems like what you're pointing to here is uh, that people felt the same sort of um, guilt that they should feel <laughs> about taking these places and about doing what they wanted to, that they had to come up with cover stories and uh, things to even make themselves feel okay just living here. Um, so does that answer that question? I mean, can we look at this and go, yeah, they're they're operating under the same sort of psychology that that we know and love today? I think that it's not, it's kind of neither here nor there to like pass judgment, but we do need to understand uh, what people were doing and why they were doing it and how those forces persist into the present day. And so you're absolutely right that uh, what's really a valuable thing that you get from studying history is understanding that even in that time, there were people who objected to what was happening. There were people who thought it was kind of bad, but were like, well, we're going to go along with it because it's, you know, to our benefit to do so. Uh, and, you know, there were all kinds of positions just as there are today. And so nothing, uh, you know, no one's actions are predetermined. But we do also have to understand the way that social forces and economic forces, uh, you know, put people in structural positions where their choices are very constrained. Uh, and so, yeah, that's where it's like judgment almost becomes not a relevant term when you're trying to understand things on a systemic level. Uh, and, you know, no one, even people who we might say were uh, radical at that time still often, you know, held racist beliefs uh, or did things that we would disagree with today. Uh, and so, you know, that's one aspect of studying spiritualism. I think uh, when academics first became interested in spiritualism, uh, as an object of study, there was an idea that it was politically radical. Um, Anne Broad's book, Radical Spirits, talks about uh, the role of spiritualists in women's suffrage and in the abolition movement. And, you know, that's true. Like many spiritualists were politically active on those issues. Um, but as a movement, it was extremely heterogeneous and like people were spiritualists who enslaved other people. So yeah, it, it becomes very complex. Hmm. 
Well, we'll get into more complexities uh, in, well, however long this, this break takes. <laughs> we'll be right back. And we're back with Alicia Pulianisi. Hmm. I got it right this time. Uh, we're, we're talking about her book, In Whose Ruins, Power, Possession, and the Landscapes of American Empire. And uh, here's, here's a question for you. I don't think anyone's asked you. Um, when the indigenous people um, uh, catch wind of this happening, do they start making up their own counter narratives or do they start using this, you know, sort of ability to sway people with these narratives in any way? And I'm thinking of, I don't know, just the one thing that you always see on ancient aliens type shows and ancient aliens itself is um, like these sort of ant people that live underground. And as you were talking about digging for treasure, I just thought like, what better way to keep people away from something that's underground than to tell them that like ant people or aliens or something live in this cave. Is there any evidence that that, that was going on, sort of a, a, a counter psyop from the native people? So that's a really interesting question that I haven't investigated. Uh, and I can't think of anything that I've read that's considered it in that way, uh, that there's a protective power of allowing certain incorrect stories to propagate when you say that a place is cursed or haunted perhaps at least then people will leave it alone is that kind of what you're suggesting? yeah yeah that's really interesting uh honestly like i'm gonna look into that because uh there's definitely some writing um jody bird writes uh in a chapter of her book, The Transitive Empire, I believe, uh, about the intersection of these, the, the plundering of indigenous mounds um, and slavery in that, uh, in the antebellum period, mounds in the U.S. South were often excavated using enslaved labor. And she uh, describes this kind of it's it's like a little bit speculative, but there's also certainly evidence for it that um, the black population who lived and worked near the mounds had uh, had their own spiritual beliefs about them or understanding of them as places that shouldn't be disturbed, and for that reason, uh, you know, their labor was compulsory, but they may have like had objections to doing those excavations. Uh, and so that I think reflects maybe some of that protective power of like the widespread belief that this is a dangerous place to disturb uh, and you mm -hmm. should leave it alone. Uh, so, but that's something I'll, I'll think about more. Uh, and I've, I've become very interested lately in the underground world. Uh, so in general, like I want to do more reading on that. Oh, okay. Um, did you speak with any um, First Nations peoples for this? Any indigenous people? Yes, uh, I spoke with a range of people, you know, connected with these different parts of the book. Uh, and do and they have direct answers? Like when, when you say, you know, hey, what was this for? 
Do they know what was like? Could people have just asked them all along and instead just pretended like they didn't exist? Like, how does this even happen on that end? Yeah, that's something that I can't necessarily answer in terms of like what were because certainly, uh, you know, archaeologists and white investigators of various stripes did ask indigenous people at times, what was this for? Where did it come from? And of course, the problem is that the white interlocutors are the ones recording and writing the history. And so usually what usually their account of that questioning is that uh, this uh, native person said they don't know or that it's just been there forever. Uh, and we don't really know what the content of that interaction, what the unspoken content of that interaction was, or even the entire spoken content, uh, or the reasons for people giving the answers that they gave. Uh, and so I think that there are uh, native writers who, who you know, are connected to these sites and can kind of reflect on it and answer that kind of question uh, in a way that is more insightful than me, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I just, I just wonder if, you know, it's like we're talking about people who are still there as though they're not there and forming new narratives for them and forming a new mythology for them as though they don't exist. I, I, I don't know. There's just, it's mind boggling that that could survive up till now and that we could still see TV shows and books written about those mythos that are, you know, you easily have debunked or, you know, found the origins of. And it just, I just wonder how that even, how does, in 2022, how does that that question gets at the role of scientific authority in sanctioning certain historical narratives and ways of understanding the past. So uh, we, the idea that science is kind of objective and simply seeking the truth, of course, uh, doesn't account for the way that science is enmeshed in uh, the political and social world and so uh i think both you know government sponsored archaeology and archaeologists who simply have ideological commitments to u.s empire uh, are going to be acting on the basis of that reality uh and so again it's like this does not excuse people's actions and choices but we it's helpful for us to understand to what extent uh, your political orientation, goals, motivations can shape the reality that you're seeing because they truly believed that the native peoples of North America uh, you know, were less than human and lacked the capacities that they had and therefore they could not have built these architectural wonders. And so there needed to be another explanation. Uh, and if even if someone from those populations were to contradict them, like it's unlikely that they would be believed. Uh, and even as you know, certain 
traditional histories of indigenous groups did substantiate their connection to earthworks and mounds, those things were disregarded. Uh, and so the idea that there was like a void and simply nothing was known uh, isn't true. Uh, things were known and there were ways of finding out more that like simply weren't pursued. Um, and perhaps weren't possible, again, in the context of like protecting knowledge uh, about the native past, it would also be like understandable if native people did not want to explain everything about the mounds to some guy who asked them. Right. Um, I mean, is it a feature and not a bug also of these fields of study? Is Should I not be surprised? Do people who... I don't know, work on the ancient alien stuff. Are they, do they know the stuff that you're talking about and ignore it? Or do they, is it all part of the, <laughs> how racist are we? In other words, like blatantly consciously racist. How, how much of that do you think is, is actually a problem in this, in these fields? Or has it all sort of gone underground and we don't even, we need, and take someone like you to like bring it to light. Uh, yeah, I, I think there are certainly a lot of people in the academy in the social sciences who, well, in fields like uh, anthropology and archaeology, uh, you know, they took the critical turn in the 70s. And uh, one of, you know, one of the advantages of that format of like intellectual community uh, is that it is uh, susceptible to critique and evidence and change. And so like within those disciplines, uh, you know, now they're very interested, like, the whole way that they've done archaeology has changed. Uh, and that's uh, a slow process and it's definitely not an easy one. And it sometimes, I, I suppose, produces bad feelings among people who don't want to let go of their old way of doing things. And so uh, I think it can still be hard for people in those fields who want to do things in a more <laughs> responsible and ethical way. Uh, but I think overall, like there's been a transformation of awareness um, about the role of white supremacy uh, and imperialism in the history of these disciplines. And there's a lot of consciousness and critical work going on around that. And so I I, I guess one question, it, it gets back to this question of authority uh, and like who you believe and why. And uh, I think that if you're inclined, it gets tricky because it's like, if you believe that the government is covering up certain things, uh, then they could be covering up anything. Uh, and so the mistrust, uh, I think, can run pretty deep and it can also run along the track of existing uh, grievances, dispositions, uh, and kind of cultural scripts such as white supremacy. Um, and so, yeah, another interesting thing about it is now that a lot of authorities are arguing for uh, 
indigenous histories of the United States and are uh, bringing to the forefront indigenous voices and trying to reconnect uh, the, you know, trying to reconnect the present with the past in that way. Uh, I've noticed that shows like, uh, you know, Searching for Lost Giants and Ancient Aliens, they will look to older authorities. Uh, they will look to older scientific authorities as evidence for their claims. And, you know, I, I've seen them show 19th century newspaper clippings as evidence that giants existed. And it's like, you need to understand your sources. 19th century newspapers printed a lot of things that weren't true. And so we can only use them as evidence of what someone at that time thought readers would believe and purchase not unlike today, uh, it's like the clickbait of the past. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> well, so in researching this, then, is there anything um, about ancient mysteries that is mysterious to you? Or has this pretty much jaded you on that? Or at least made you realize, well, well, you know what, if I just delve into this a little bit, I'll probably find uh, not so mysterious. Uh, sometimes I'm afraid that I come off as a little bit jaded, but <laughs> I don't think that I am. I think that... Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe on some, maybe some days I wake up less jaded than others, but uh, I think that, you know, there are mysteries of what people's experiences were like in the past. Uh, what their everyday lives were like. Uh, there are a lot of things. I'm of the persuasion that like there are a lot of things that we can't know. And those things are interesting and okay to think about and can be very generative, for instance, in science fiction. But the quest to know them <laughs> to master them uh, can be destructive at times. Uh, and the less, you know, the less evidence there is, the more likely people are to fill in with their prejudices and assumptions. Uh, so it tells us a lot about our culture and our world, the things that people, uh, use to fill those gaps in knowledge but uh yeah I, I think sometimes they really are no good uh mm. i'm trying to think of like what do yeah i think the experience of the past still evokes a sense of wonder and mystery uh even while recognizing that like we can't always find answers. And on that note, we will leave the free Dreamlanders uh, to ponder what we've talked about here and uh, go get her book, Alicia Polianisi, uh, In Whose Ruins, Power, Possession, and the Landscapes of American Empire. Um, there is a link in the description. Go pick it up. Alicia, thank you so much um, for, uh, for talking with us again. And, um, Let's go on to your next book. That's in secret. 
<laughs> I don't know why I said that in secret, but uh, let's go on to your next book. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you for the question. Free Dreamlanders or Freelanders, as I like to call you. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining me on my inaugural episode. I hope to see you again in a month. Um, enjoy Whitley Strieber for the rest of the month, as will I. And uh, thank you, Whitley, for um, allowing me a, a space on your show. Um, I don't know if this is passing the torch, but I'm going to pretend that it is. Because, <laughs> you know, I need to feel good about me, Whitley. I need to feel good about me. Um, thank you again to Alicia Puglianisi for doing this. Go find her at, again, AliciaPuglianisi.com um, or, you know, just buy her books. They're great reads. Do it. What have you got to lose? <laughs> I mean, what, are you going to read more Greer crap? Come on. Uh... <laughs> How to make friends and influence people. Ting. All right. That's enough of this. No one needs a long outro. This is long enough. Uh, I will see you next month. Actually, hey, you know what? There's a second half of this conversation where we're going to talk about Common Phantoms, a book about psychic research. I mean, if you want to see that, if you want to hear that, go on over to unknowncountry.com and become a subscriber. Uh, It's like a pittance to do that. And you have like... I don't know, a thousand years? I might be exaggerating, but something like a thousand years worth of uh, archived articles and audio from and video from Whitley um, and from me um, and from others. I mean, it's a cornucopia. What other words can I use to describe it? It's a lot. It's a treasure trove. That's the word. <laughs> a treasure trove of mystery awaits you at unknowncountry.com. So... Go there, subscribe, and make it known. All right. Take care, everyone. Um, so we're, we're now, um, this is for subscribers. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Common Phantoms, an American History of Psychic Science. Um, I guess, here's a question for you. Let's, let's start it off in a nice dreamlandy way, I guess. Um, when you when you're investigating these things or through having investigated these these things, have you personally started to have any sort of high strangeness experiences or sort of like i don't know paranormal dangling carrots and synchronicities happen that that sort of suck you down a rabbit hole kind of thing? Has that been uh in your life at all uh I've definitely <laughs> I've definitely thought about it uh, especially when like sitting in the very haunted library of the American Society for Psychical Research. And I think about it all the time as a historian, because you're working with the dead all the time. And maybe there's something about that constant presence that makes things not like specifically manifest in a moment of like, you know, the veil of reality being pulled back (laughs) and like something emerging. I guess I'm always like in a little bit of an altered state and people have told me that they thought I was on drugs when they first met me. (laughs) I'm not at all. Uh, So yeah, I've never had like a standout paranormal experience, but also like I'm just doing this all the time. 
See that I guess that knowing that makes me uh, it is like gets to why do you want to like why did you want to write a book about this like if you haven't had the an experience it would seem to me like you would be into psychics or something and then if you're into psychics and you realize wait a minute there's a link here to like racism and oil and like that would be depressing to me but uh you seem okay with it so what drew you to write about psychics in the first place if you're if you're not an experiencer um, I think that there's another kind of element of serendipity or whatever in that when I was in graduate school, uh, I, I've always I've always been interested in border sciences, uh, in places where the kind of the limits of materialism and rationality uh, and science are kind of stretched or break down uh and you know it's like from childhood like i was always reading weird fiction i was always reading science fiction and ghost stories uh and so again i think it was just very familiar material to me uh and i've always wanted to understand why people believe what they believe how people know what they know like where does knowledge come from and I guess that seems abstract, but it's also like a natural question to ask, I guess, when you're like snooping around as a kid looking for ghosts and stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I was in graduate school uh, working on like the history of medicine and science. And I was looking, uh, this was like, early on in the advent of Google Books, uh, you know, when Google had just scooped a bunch of public domain stuff that was being deaccessioned from libraries and digitized it all and dumped it on the internet. And uh, I was going through early Google Books uh, looking for images of ghost hands, like because they had people turning the pages of the books and their hands were often in the photographs. And so I was looking for those like for an art project, not related to scholarship at all. And I was finding a lot of ghost hands in a particular book. And then I checked to see what book it was. And it was the Proceedings of the American Society for Psychical Research. And honestly, like that was how I found out about that organization. And uh, I immediately like looked at the table of contents and was like, ah, yes, <laughs> these are the things that I'm interested in. Uh, these are the people who are, you know, in the 19th century asking those questions. Uh, can we account for these experiences and phenomena scientifically? And uh, can we establish a objective foundation for our spiritual and religious beliefs in life after death, in the immortality of the soul. Uh, and so it just, you know, it's at this nexus of like, society is starting to secularize. People are, you know, there's Darwin in deep time. People are decentered from their preeminent place in the universe. And yeah, there's a desire to recover something using science. Um, 
and to truly know for real this time. In the last segment, we were talking a little bit about uh, spiritualism and oil, um, but that actually, does, does that originate with this book, your, your finding of a link between spiritualism and oil? Um, I'm trying to remember. I think I may have found uh, the one really good article about that by uh, Rochelle Zuck uh, <laughs> about spiritual soil. I think I may have found that. I wonder if it's even in the work cited in my first book. I think I had found it and I just didn't know what to do with it yet. Hmm. Does psychic research then, does it have, uh, I don't know, uh, a foundation to it that is, well, like the, the in, in uh, you know, the monuments we were talking about, it's, it's about um, racism and exploitation and this sort of thing. Do we find the same thing as the basis in this research or is it just in it? I mean, is it the basis or is it just a factor? Uh it's definitely a factor in that it's just a shaping force in most people's worldviews and life experiences that, uh, you know, they lived in a white supremacist state that was engaged in colonial expansion. And so that sort of shapes everyone's lived reality. And of course, some people are actively supporting that and others are uh, more critical of it. Um, but I think that in the first book, Common Phantoms, I was looking at the brighter side of things and seeing uh, spiritualism and psychical research as uh, kind of exemplifying the things about democracy that are good and hopeful in that uh, people are actively engaged in trying to understand their shared reality and to kind of map it collectively. Hmm. And I saw the psychical research as ASPR's archives as kind of a repository of this like American, uh, not collective unconscious because these were experiences consciously recorded and put in the mail. Uh, but a repository of like experience and uh, the desire to like make sense of things together, I guess. Hmm. What I find interesting is, uh, you know, mesmerism, hypnosis, and hysteria are all sort of lumped in with psychic research, right? Back then. And, um, I guess two of those have sort of fallen by the wayside, but hypnosis is still a thing. <laughs> um, so do you know how they became entangled with subjects like psychic abilities? And then how did they get detangled and, and uh, how did hypnosis survive as a tool to be studied to this day? Um, that's a great question. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, yeah, that's hypnosis specifically has come up a lot recently. Uh, just among friends and acquaintances. Um, and actually, just today, I was reading uh, an Ambrose Bierce story called, I believe it's called The Hypnotist. Uh, and I forget what year it's from, but, you know, he's a 19th century U.S. 
uh, journalist and short story writer. Uh, and it's just an absolutely devastating story uh, about this uh, very malevolent hypnotist. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I don't, let's start with uh, mesmerism and animal magnetism, I guess. Like in the late 18th century, uh, you know, there's this practice of mesmerism associated with Franz Anton Mesmer that was is initially like a physical healing modality, like it's to treat to treat people's maladies. Um, you they will go to the mesmerist and be magnetized, and so there's a belief in this invisible magnetic force that flows through the body that the magnetizer is able to influence uh, in order to cure you. Uh, and that builds on kind of a lot of stuff that's happening in, uh, in quote unquote, legitimate uh, science at the time in terms of uh, discoveries in magnetism, electricity. Uh, there are a lot of invisible forces all around us that scientists were beginning to understand uh, and investigate. And so, or to understand on sort of a more uh, advanced level than previously. And so that makes this idea of mesmerism kind of plausible to people. And that intersects with other streams of uh, sort of vitalism and metaphysics uh, in the early 19th century. Uh, it's really uh, kind of like a cauldron <laughs> that's bubbling. Uh, of all of these different ideas and beliefs. Um, but yeah, so mesmerism, uh, you know, ultimately becomes popularized and like there are traveling mesmerists uh, who will come to your town and offer you this cure. Um, animal magnetism becomes widely uh, dispersed in like American culture as just like an explanation for what's going on inside of you. Like what is, the body and mind, it must be some kind of animal magnetism. Uh, and so, yeah, this is like a very like sloppy <laughs> and rough timeline. Uh, but at a certain point, uh, you know, psychiatrists, uh, alienists, people, doctors who work in uh, asylums, uh, you know, they become interested in using uh, magnetism or mesmerism uh, to treat patients and you know they're experimenting with it and at that point like mesmerism has kind of is on the decline and it's kind of falling uh, into disrepute and hypnosis is the more medicalized version of it um, at least that's my understanding and so Hypnosis kind of strips away both the carnivalesque, like traveling showman aspect, uh, and the magnetic fluid aspect, which was no longer necessary um, if you believe that what's going on is all purely mental. It's happening in the brain somehow, in the psyche. Uh, your conscious mind is being suspended in trance, and your unconscious is then accessible. So I think that's the kind of, that's the promise of hypnosis. And so psychical researchers, uh, 
you know, I think they used both terms and they were interested again in like evaluating the claims of practitioners. Uh, and I mean, they're interested in all kinds of trans states, uh, not just those, you know, invoked by a hypnotist or mesmerizer. Uh, mediums, you know, go into trances themselves, so they're in control. I know. Um, so for unknowncountry.com, which is what this show is for, uh, I had and sometimes have uh, a show, a sideshow called uh, The Experience, where I would talk to experiencers of high strangeness, which is mostly you know, people you would call alien abductees, but, you know, I don't think that those terms apply. But uh, when you talk to people who have not had hypnosis, it's, it is more in the realm of something high, highly strange, highly personal, shamanic, you know, something along those lines. And when you talk to people and, you know, more loosey-goosey, and when you talk to people who have had hypnosis, they come out with a sci-fi narrative version of a fairy tale. And I'm wondering, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but um, is there any reason that you can think of, I mean, that that hypnosis would pull out of us things that, you know, tales that mirror fair, ye old fairy tales? Like, what is that that is actually being pulled out there? Yeah, that is a question that's beyond me in terms of actual answers, but I can certainly speculate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it's like there's a kind of Jungian view that those archetypes and myths are out there in distributed across the collective unconscious and we access them in moments of altered consciousness or trance uh, or dreams. And there's also the kind of more historical view that we absorb these things all the time, you know, from birth in our society, in the stories that we're told, the things we watch and listen to, uh, and that those are the things that are then recapitulated in, uh, you know, mediumistic writing or speech uh, or under hypnosis. and. Uh, I kind of, <laughs> that seems a bit deflating <laughs> that we're sort of merely recapitulating the world around us. Uh, I think it is, a, a, I think it's an important explanation for some things. And that's one aspect. And I think I am more persuaded in that direction because I look at experiences in the past. Uh, I've, you know, just read. <laughs> so many hundreds of reports of uh, what we would now term paranormal experiences from the 19th century. And again, these are firsthand reports written by the experiencers, uh, but they often you know, follow similar patterns and recapitulate similar tropes that you, know, you, you recognize from 19th century culture, such as the idea of mound builders um, or, you know, any number of things. Uh, and sometimes we don't give ourselves or others enough credit as observers of our, con of our context. 
Uh, and so I think in that way, it's like, it's not, def it's not to deflate or to debunk, but it's to say that like, we are very porous and we are always absorbing the things around us uh, on a deeper level than I think we realize. And so those, yeah, those things are inside us and are sometimes, uh, you know, re-emerge in different ways in these altered states. Uh, but that's and, fascinating on its own, you know, like the fact that you, you know, because I, I think essentially if, if you're in, you know, someone who believes you're abducted by aliens and you believe that you have missing time, you go to a hypnotherapist who you probably know about because you're into this stuff. So you go to someone who you relate to already and together you co-create a story of what happened during that missing time. And part of that story is going to be from your personal memory. Part of it is going to be whatever the hypnotherapist has in mind as a, uh, a narrative already for what's going on and the self-editing that goes into and the not wanting to waste the hypnotherapist's time and, and all those things that go into shaping the story. But you're also saying like, also, we're not just tapping the personal unconscious, we're tapping the collective or some larger imaginal realm where like this, this sort of narrative structure <laughs> kind of comes in and, and uh, we fill in those gaps in some way. And that is almost as magical as anything, really. <laughs> like when you, when you think about like how, and then that becomes so strong in a person that they believe that that is what happened to them. Um, there's something about that, that the, the, I don't know, the power of that that gets overlooked for the fact that it um, debunks at least the mainstream abduction narrative of what's going on. Um, is there any research into that you know of into that into sort of breaking down what really is going into instead of just saying like altered states is there anyone getting into the minutia of what these thing these components are that go into a hypnotic memory yeah i know that there are people working uh i i'm sure there are like innumerable people doing uh ethnographies of these practices because i think that's really one of the best ways to reach a like you know non-judgmental understanding of just like how these interactions relations and rituals work why they have power uh and kind of how they have their own internal logic and it might not align with like the logic of scientific method uh, it might want you to believe that it does because the scientific method uh, and objective science are so prized in our culture that everyone kind of wants that mantle, even while critiquing science and saying that science is covering up the truth. We still want the mantle of science because of the authority it has. Uh, but I think that, you know, we can appreciate the logics of these experiences. Uh, simply for what they are. And actually, I think a, an example that I recently read uh, <laughs> and reviewed um, is this uh, book about near-death experiences by Alan Kelleher. And I found his approach like very compelling in that regard. Like it's really just like, it's kind of like what you just said about uh, wanting to understand the context of experiences rather than just like isolate the content of like an alien was seen. <laughs> or 
you know, and being of light was seen. And this proves the truth of the afterlife or what have you. Um, you know, Kelleher does a really good job, like kind of systematically, like walking through experiences and the properties that they share of like familiar rituals from our social lives that are kind of transmuted into this uh, ecstatic or transcendent experience. And so there's a, there's a good deal of work like that, looking at, uh, looking at spiritualist communities uh, and, you know, other religious communities that, you know, do communication with the dead or altered states. Uh, so, yeah. Is there anything about, uh, like, when you look into psi phenomena and how, um, you know, the Euro-American take on it versus, like, an in indigenous cultures, how they treat it, or even, like, I, I read or started reading a Charles Leadbeater book, um, who was one of the muckety-mucks of theosophy, who was the psychic who discovered Jiddu Krishnamurti. You know, this is his resume. And he's got a book, you know, of talking about like auras and channeling and all this. But it goes into minutia of how to live, what to eat, what to do, you know, all of this stuff that almost makes it seem like a science that is forgotten. And I pair that with conversations I've had with people from various, you know, indigenous nations where they have a handle on something that seems more like a science than, than anything having to do with psychic stuff or whatever. Um, and it, I almost wonder if like, for some reason, the people who grew up in, you know, Bible societies uh, are just grasping and groping at, at stuff that's already known, already explained. And, but I don't know, there's something in there about like, because it's not meticulously documented the way science is, there's no like sort of lineage in document form of, um, of the evolution of like psychic research um, prior to what you would find in the 1800s, you know, um, that if there is, yeah, if there is, if there are already experts, let's say <laughs> on the planet who have figured this stuff out, and again, we're just not asking them or we're just ignoring them to find it ourselves, to have some sense of discovery for ourselves. Do you think that there's something to that? That brings up a lot of kind of possibilities uh, and ways of interpreting, because I think uh, what is satisfying and fulfilling for a given person as truth as uh you know kind of transcendental uh truth or revelation is very context dependent also so and i think that is why we in uh you know the u.s europe whatever the industrialized west uh that's why people are in this position of seeking scientific legitimacy uh, because we have such a strong association of science with truth. Um, and there's an argument about secularization that like the loss of faith in the 19th century and the rise of science and secularism, uh, you know, disrupted everything and emptied our lives of spiritual meaning uh, and left us 
groping uh, after existential straws. And, uh, you, you know, I, I don't deny the impact of those transformations. Uh, I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's not a narrative of triumph in that secularization did not win. Uh, religion never was conquered and died. Uh, it continued, continues to exist, uh, both formal religion and uh, increasingly alternative forms of spirituality and spiritual practice uh, that, again, flow along the lines of an individualistic and atomized society, one that seeks affirmation from science uh, or seeks to incorporate what we believe into a scientific framework for our own peace of mind. Uh, you know, that's in, intricately tied up with why and how we believe things uh, just because of who we are and where we are. And so, yeah, the idea that I, I think that the idea that people uh, who are, the idea that various like indigenous cultures have long understood things uh, and have long been able to explain things and predict things using their methods uh, is well substantiated uh, by uh, the work that people from those cultures have produced. Uh, and so it's like the question of whether to call that science or not is a thing that people go back and forth on. Like, is it indigenous science? Is it empowering for indigenous people to claim the name of science for their knowledge? Um, or do they not want to call it science because of the associations historically with sciences of racism and empire? And, you know, that's like an ongoing conversation that people have. Uh, but what's behind that conversation is the fact that like, yes, uh, indigenous societies knew and understood how things worked for a very long time. Uh, and, you know, we could certainly say that about the European past as well, um, but just <laughs> the accretion, the way that things stacked up uh, is that we now feel, uh, we now often feel science to be very relevant to whether or not something is true. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking like, even in terms of just to go back to Charles Leadbeater, because I don't read a whole lot of those types of books, but it just, uh, it's tedious. It's tedious the amount of like detail and, and just tedious things that he focuses on that I don't know who that's for unless it's true. And if it's true, what happened to it? Where did that knowledge go? Because again, we don't have like a scientific line where Charles Leadbeater's work gets, you know, transcended and included within this or gets uh, debunked, but this little kernel of it goes on. Like, we don't know that. We can see how it influenced different sort of spiritual movements and that sort of thing or new age movements. But there's nobody really doing a chronology like that. And it's not a science like that, so why would you? Um, but it just, I guess it, in a weird way, it sort of segues me to a question that somebody had asked me to address uh, eventually on the show. So I might as well just ask you. And the question was like, what happened to people who used to spontaneously combust? Where did that go? And I'll just ask it to you in, in, in this general way. Are there 
there there are right certain phenomena and and things that used to happen or, or you know supposedly that don't anymore does that what how do you account for that i mean outside of like lying and shenanigans if there are legit reports of things um is it just that we've learned more and so spontaneous like human combustion just you know isn't real or or is accounted for in some way that it's not newsworthy or is there something about paranormal phenomena or even psychic abilities that change with the ages that there almost is sort of an amorphous intelligence that is puppeteering as opposed to all of the facades that we see being you know real and sort of autonomous does that make sense It does. So I think the like contingency of different kinds of phenomena and, uh, you know, you, you mentioned spontaneous combustion. Uh, hysteria is another one. Um, like hysteria was a formal medical diagnosis with like a very uh, standardized set of symptoms in the 19th century. And today we, we don't see those specific, uh, you know, behavioral symptoms. And so, like, what happened to it? Where did it go? Um, are you familiar with Ian Hacking? No. So he's, like, the guy on this. Uh, he's a science studies scholar. And he's written a lot about uh, precisely that, like, the way that a specific historical period, like, the dynamics of a given time and place are such that, like, a particular phenomenon becomes possible and kind of catches on and uh, is becomes widely understood to be either real or potentially intriguingly maybe real uh, and something to be investigated. Uh, and so he has a few case studies of like those kinds of uh, phenomena where they exist for a time uh, and then seemingly go away. And one of them is this kind of like, uh, this kind of like, I'm I'm forgetting what the term for it was, but again, when this 19th century phenomenon where uh, young men would kind of go into a fugue state and have no idea who and where they were and they would just leave and they would be found weeks or months later in a different country, hundreds of miles away and they would remember who they were uh, and have no idea how they got there. And this was like an epidemic uh, that was, uh, you know, covered in the press. And so the public came to understand that this was an epidemic uh, and it continued to happen for a period of time. And then it kind of died down. Uh, And that specific (laughs) set of, uh, behaviors is no longer something that we consider like a clinical syndrome. Hmm. Is there anything uh, from the 1800s or early 1900s, um, either by way of phenomena or by way of theory, um, that has been discarded that you think deserves a second look where you're like, wow, that's actually still relevant. I don't know why that went away. Well, I. I'm a fan of certain aspects uh, of the Society for Psychical Research uh, in terms of like the position of openness and 
like the effort to document experiences in order to sort of collectively try to understand them. Uh, and so William James, for instance, who's known as uh, the first professor of psychology in the United States, uh, you know, it's like he's in psychology textbooks. Uh, he, he wrote the first US psychology textbook, uh, but he's also a psychical researcher. And so spends a lot of time over the course of his life going to seances, interacting with mediums who he knows to be fraudulent, and still kind of searching for something. Uh, and, and he's often like depicted as a casualty of that 19th century secularization, right? He's someone who studied science and couldn't fully believe in uh, religion or the afterlife uh, with like, the, with his deepest being because of his feelings of conflict around like scientific uh, rationality and objectivity. And so I think that, you know, in his writings, he promotes the stance of openness to experience. Uh, and like acceptance of the experiences of others to a certain degree that I think is important in order to all live together, <laughs> in order to like give each other the grace of like understanding and being understood. Um, and so I find that valuable. And at the same time, you know, in my book and in my research, like there are certainly many, many pitfalls and ways that uh, those beliefs serve ends that I deeply disagree with. Hmm. Um, just sticking with the research itself, um, do you see a difference in quality of what comes out of a lab versus out of the layman doing ghost hunting stuff, for instance, or even the military doing remote viewing, if you've looked into that. Um, it, are there qualitative differences? Uh, I think they're kind of different modes of knowledge production. And so that's another area, uh, you know, early on in my training, I was, uh, you know, reading the sociological literature on the social construction of scientific knowledge. Um, the way that, uh, quote unquote, real science, the science that happens in university laboratories, uh, is also that knowledge is produced by a set of uh, structures that are also social and cultural, uh, because it's humans doing all of this. Like, there's no pure reason <laughs> dictating how all of this should happen. Uh, and so that, so the way that academic science is done is uh, enmeshed in, in, in all of these things. And the way that, uh, you know, it's sometimes called parascience is done is a reflection of <laughs> the way that uh, fully sanctioned and legitimized science is done because there's an, there's, I think a, a smart 
appropriation of the tools and formats and processes of science, uh, but ultimately with like kind of a different metaphysics, which is the metaphysical idea that uh, ghosts are real. And so we're measuring them using scientific instruments. And uh, it's interesting, it's like, I ghosts could certainly be real. And I, I would be inclined to believe that they are, but I, the the extent to which they can be measured is something that I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't measure them. Um, right. But so, but developing like a culture and structure of like scientific instrumentation and measurement is uh, a characteristic of like those, uh, those parasciences. And so there's a lot of back and forth and interplay and it's a love-hate relationship. Hmm. Well, when it comes to things like beings, like ghosts or supposed aliens or, you know, go down Bigfoot even, I don't know, go down the list. Um, I guess, do you, so you're at least open to there being something about them that's not just a human construct, something that's real, quote unquote real. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think, I don't know if the word real is the right word to use. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> Something yeah. that's not us. I mean, because my question about it is like, if we're using them in ways uh, for us, you know, for conquest, for whatever, is there anything, do they have a response to it? You know, does it play along if, if, there, if it's an it, if it's not just like people are making stuff up, if there's a, a thing there, um, do you see any evidence of it caring how we contextualize it? Yeah. And so, I mean, that's like a bit of a contradiction that I dig myself into uh, with the second book, which is much more like looking at the political economy of haunting and the both explicit and unconscious uses of the dead to justify uh, and perpetuate white supremacy. Uh, and so, yeah, it gets into that question of, it, it, and it's like a very uncomfortable question for people of like, who do believe in certain paranormal things uh, that like, if, if demonstrably these, uh, you know, 19th century spiritualist manifestations are merely a reflection of the racist tropes and beliefs of the white people in the seance, uh, you know, does that mean that all spiritual manifestations are kind of contaminated uh, or must be reduced to uh, projections from the experiencer? And Again, like I kind of stay agnostic on that. Uh, I can certainly, you know, certainly like a lot of the work that I do is putting together because, you know, it's like we underestimate other people and people in the past. And for instance, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, this woman who had a vision on the Miamisburg mound uh, where she claimed to see ancient 
Native Americans building the mound. I went looking in newspapers and magazines from that period of her experience to see what she would have known about the mound builder debate uh, and what viewpoints she would have been exposed to. And so, of course, like, there was plenty of popular writing about did a lost white race build the mounds? Did Native Americans build the mounds? Um, certainly the lost race theory was much, uh, had sort of a more viral appeal <laughs> to people. And so it got dispersed very widely, but there were also people making the opposing argument for indigenous origins. And so there was like a newspaper series written by an archeologist, uh, you know, in the years before this woman's experience that was circulated widely, would have been available in her local paper. And so like we can, we can't say that she was naive and had no knowledge of anything to do with North American archeology. span And the idea that mediums couldn't possibly have any knowledge of the thing that they produce in a trance state uh, appears a lot in the psychical research literature. And it's interesting because of the gendered dynamics of spiritualist mediumship, that it's often female mediums uh, and male investigators. And, you know, the investigators will be like, she couldn't possibly have known this thing. So it must have been the spirits. Uh, Whereas, you know, it was in the daily newspaper. <laughs> like people were very voracious readers. Uh, just the way that people consume a lot of social media today, people in the past consumed the newspaper uh, very eagerly. Hmm. Can I ask you one more question? I know we're a little bit over time here. And are you familiar with the Seth books, Jane Roberts? Okay. I just want to run this by you <laughs> uh, just on the way out the door here, which is um, if, if anything has irked me more, I don't know what it is than people who have said, you have to read Seth. It's amazing. It's amazing. It has to be what it is. And, and it doesn't matter how many times I've say I've read Seth and it's not amazing. Uh, it doesn't seem it falls on deaf ears. I'm, I'm reading it wrong. <laughs> So I just do a basic sort of wiki search and whatever else uh, and find where there are places where Seth says wrong things. Seth says racist things. And it strikes me like, have, what do you think about this? It seems to me that the, the simple answer to Jane Roberts, who seemed to not know how this was happening, all that is like a woman in her time who was, uh, quite well educated. I don't know what her actual educational background was, but certainly she's read a lot of books and has a lot to say. And what better way to say it? What better way to have a room full of people's attention than to pretend to be like an old white guy or not even pretend, but even unconsciously sort of dissociate yourself from your own set of knowledge and claim that someone else is doing it in a voice or whatever. I mean, it just seems like there's something in there about being repressed as a woman and having a voice and wanting to speak that produces Seth, that seems more probable than Seth. 
Uh, do you think that that's a bridge too far or do you think that there's something there? No, and that's definitely the analysis uh, in Anne Broad's book, Radical Spirits. That's the analysis that she applies to 19th century spiritualism. That this was that mediumship was a way that women could have a public voice and speak with the authority of yes, yeah, speak with the authority of huh, death. Like okay. Death. Uh, <laughs> so all right, and it's there. I, it's there, yeah. And I, I think that that is a real dynamic that exists and existed, uh, and yet it's like deeply troubling in all of these ways that we've discussed because it raises the question of like who is speaking for whom and like it's kind of like cool and empowering for a victorian woman to be up on the public platform speaking in the voice of george washington and calling down the wrath of the founding fathers upon a slave-owning society uh, there's something kind of like that's you can see that as being galvanizing uh, but of course those same mediums are also channeling what they called Indian spirits which is an extremely racist spectacle uh, in uh, when that happens and so they're also again reproducing all of these tropes uh, that they've absorbed and so and that some of them sincerely believe uh you know in racial stratification and inequality uh and so the question of like what's really beneath it all is there ultimately like some mysterious force at work that is just functioning weirdly or like signals that aren't really getting through you know something about reality is being disturbed but like no clear signal is coming through uh you know it's like those are ways of maybe thinking through it um but there's also a purely materialist analysis which is that uh you know these cultural forms the seance uh the the kind of like Seth style channeled book uh, are cultural modes that people learn uh, and adapt. Hmm. Well, we will leave it on that note. Alicia, thank you again for coming on here and thanks for staying a little bit longer with me. Much appreciated. Thank you. And everyone out there, go get her books, Common Phantoms, In Whose Ruins. There are links. You can't miss it. <laughs> Visit her on her website. Um, do, are you on social media at all? Do you like chatting with people? Is there anything you'd like to give out? Uh, I'm technically on social media. I'm not a very good producer of content for social media. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> but all right. I post, yeah, I post occasionally. Okay. So... Uh, Seek her out at your at your discretion. <laughs> really, just stick with the website, I think is what she's saying. But okay. Uh, Alicia, much appreciated. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. 
Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.